Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty Sessions, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. Please join me as we start liberating dreams one episode at a time. Liberty listeners, here we are for another episode of Liberty Sessions. And today I'm so excited to introduce to you Blythe Hill. Blythe, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. It's kind of fun to have you because I know you outside of the podcast. So it's kind of fun um, to kind of provide a platform for everybody to learn about your awesome organization, Drisember. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this nonprofit that you've started? Sure. So I am the CEO and founder of the Dressember Foundation, which is an anti-trafficking nonprofit organization. We have an annual push each year where we encourage people to wear dresses during the month of December as a way to raise awareness and money for anti-trafficking organizations. So is it kind of like Movember, but with uh, dresses? Yeah, it's kind of that idea. Um, and we have had men join in, uh, either through wearing dresses or kilts or more men have joined in by wearing ties or bow ties during the month of December. I'm going to make my husband wear a kilt that I want to see. That's going to be good. Okay. So, but men can wear ties. That's good to know. And so when does that actually launch? So we open registration on October 1st on our website, dressember.org. Um, and then the actual challenge is the month of December. So December 1st through December 31st. So in like two weeks, three weeks? Yeah, we? yeah. super soon. Okay, so we can check that out. And if we subscribe to December, will we get alerted to the October 1st date? Is that how that'll work? Yeah, Just, okay. absolutely. So you can follow us on social media or um, sign up on our website to be on our newsletter. Okay, good. Okay. Wanted to get that in there. That's awesome. So where did you actually start before you launched December? Were you always in the nonprofit world or give us kind of that background? No. So I don't have a background in nonprofit work. I was an English major and then stayed in school and got my master's in English. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I loved to write. Um, but immediately after college, I kind of bounced around. I worked for a local magazine in Orange County. And then when I moved to Los Angeles in 2011, I worked at a trend forecasting company in account oh, wow. management. Um, and then Dressember was kind of growing on the side, very much a side hustle for a number of years. So while you were working, this was just an idea that you kind of hatched? Like, I think I'll wear a dress and see if I can get people to give me money or were, were you just making people aware of trafficking? Like give us that early December story. Yeah. So December actually started as just a personal style challenge when I was in college and oh, wow. it was kind of something that I came up with as a creative outlet, a way to break up my days, um, creatively, uh, and in a way that didn't require a lot of time, like I had to get dressed anyway. So just to, wanted to infuse it with creativity. I came up with the idea to try wearing a dress every day for a month. And it happened to be November when I had this idea. And so the next full month was December and I came up with the name Dressember. 
and I love puns. So that pretty much <laughs> sealed the deal. Um, and then it, so it was just a style challenge from 2009 until 2013 when I decided to try aligning it with a cause. Okay. That's, um, interesting in terms of listeners who have something that is a creative outlet or, um, a curiosity that could eventually become something else. I mean, I don't think most people would think that that's how December started. So that's a unique kind of piece of your story. So let's go back to your writer. You're working for a magazine in Orange County and then a trend forecasting company. What did those things kind of teach you or how did they inform you in the work you're doing today? Um, yeah, well, I think writing is a skill that overlaps into anything you do. So it, um, definitely taught me to communicate well and clearly. Um, sometimes short is best. Um, so when I worked at the magazine, it was, it's a, it was a small magazine. And so I wore a lot of hats. I was doing photography and graphic design and writing and editing and all of those things served have served me really well in what I'm doing now. Cause I'm still, I'm wearing a lot of hats at Dressember. So it's interesting that at four, you're at four years now going into your fifth year campaign that you're still wearing a lot of hats within your own organization. Um, based on some of maybe the other nonprofits that you know about, uh, would you say the founders tend to be involved even four and five years down the road to that extent? Like they're writing, they're looking at, you know, whether they're taking the pictures or not, maybe um, not, but maybe they're still really involved in kind of the visual and the is that yeah on par? Yeah, I think definitely for in the nonprofit world, there's just yeah. um, less funding. You know, when you look at overhead, whether it's fifteen to twenty percent that's retained, that's the actual operational budget, and so there's just less to work with. There's um, fewer resources, and I'm not able to hire people as sure. frequently or as quickly as I would like. So yeah, I do have to continue to carry a lot of that. What were, what have been some of the really important hires that you would say it was really instrumental when I made this very first hire or maybe when I brought in my board or something like that, that you could, that anyone who's listening could sort of glean from and say, okay, if I'm going the 5013C route and I'm doing the bare bones kind of thing, I eventually need to maybe think of this person being my first hire. What, where can you offer advice in, in that area? Yeah, I'm a big fan of contractors. Um, so I'm actually the only employee currently at December. Okay. And then we have um, independent contractors. The very first contractor I hired was an accountant controller. Um, so pretty much as soon as we became a certified 501c3 and began retaining any funds, that immediately went to pay her because I'm not a finance person. And it was just, I know it's important. It's important in, in any business, sure. but especially in the nonprofit sector to manage funding responsible, uh, responsibly. I would even say for someone who is more of a math or finance person, that that's probably a good first hire for transparency sake and just for keeping kind of separating church and state a little bit from the founder. I would think that as soon as you start to involve more people, it's nice to have a third party who's really managing that and be able to point to that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, we do a voluntary audit every spring and that's um, 
you know, one thing that's kind of one thing they look for when they're auditing a nonprofit is to make sure that the person who's signing the checks is not also the person who's reconciling the bank statements. Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. Um, okay, we're going to talk really quickly, or I want to ask you a question rather on the money thing. And I, I, this is, I didn't give you a heads up to this, so I hope this is okay. But um, in one of our early conversations, when I first got to know you, something really struck me about the way you were intentionally running your finances. And we were talking about a lot of the 100% model that's really gotten some traction in the last maybe five years, um, perhaps even longer. And you said, well, that's great. And that's been really great for certain organizations that you really liked the idea of what your model, or you were intentional about your model, which is, can you describe that to us and explain why you wanted to do it that way? Yeah, it's been interesting to see some of the charities move towards uh, either a really small overhead ratio or an entirely, you know, 100% of your donation goes towards the cause or the program work, and then they fundraise separately to fund their overhead. Um, What I have seen, or in my opinion, how an organization is able to sustain that model depends entirely on the leadership of the organization. It really takes a certain type of personality to continue to uh, recruit deep pocket donors Mm. who are passionate about operational costs in addition to stirring up public interest in making a donation to the work itself. Can I just say something there? Because there's something really important about what you just said, which is there's nothing wrong with the model, if I heard you correctly, but I know myself and I know that maybe I'm not that person. And so the decision was made based on you knowing yourself, knowing your skill set, knowing where you would shine and what was important in sustaining the business Am I or the organization rather. Yeah, I think that's a lot to do with it. You know, I'm not... Um, I'm not an extrovert. I'm not a promoter. I'm not a salesperson. Um, There's nothing wrong with those things, but I am not any of those things. And so it would not come easily Mm -hmm. to me to have two different narratives of fundraising. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also just being on the other side of the nonprofit world, the other side as in inside the nonprofit world, Mm -hmm. um, where I'm no longer just making a donation to a nonprofit, the way that I think about overhead has completely changed. Um, you know, I think we've been taught to assess a nonprofit organization's value based on what percentage of your donation goes directly towards program, Uh, When we should be asking different questions, we should be asking, well, what sort of impact is the organization having? Mm -hmm. And also when we talk about overhead, those are people. Yeah. (laughs) You know, people's salaries fall within overhead and it takes people to do the programmatic work. So I just look at it totally differently now. I so appreciate that distinction because you you kind of, I think, maybe set the record straight a little bit for me in my own mind, because when I think of overhead, I think of expensive collateral or campaigns that, you know, cost a lot to print and put out um, or advertise versus the human being that's actually moving the organization forward. And so thanks for that. I think a lot of our listeners will hear the same, hear what I heard, hear you um, making a distinction, an important distinction uh, that maybe we haven't 
considered. So thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. Well, I'll just make a quick plug. Um, one of my favorite Ted talks is by Dan Pilata and he just kind of breaks down the way that we think about nonprofits is dead wrong. And that actually, um, you know, an organization might have a bigger impact and create a bigger pie of funding by having a larger overhead percentage in order to hire better talent, in order to have more efficient programs and processes. Mm -hmm. um, in order to focus. Yeah. 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 And so not everyone have their should go. time divided. Who, who is he for those of us who don't know? Yeah. Dan Pilata has been in and out of the nonprofit world for a while, but he... Um, most recently, I think, had a for-profit business that raised money for AIDS research, and he took a lot of heat for it because he had a 50-50 uh, return on his walk. I think that was the percentage he had, but he raised millions of dollars. So it, it was, um, you know, really challenging the way that we think about charity work, mm -hmm. that um, this assumption that, well, if you, if you work for a nonprofit, if you work in charity, you should not be making a profit yourself. Yeah. Um, which unfortunately, you know, uh, the majority of Harvard business school graduates and so on end up, it makes more sense financially for them to pursue a for-profit job and make a donation to a nonprofit than to directly work for a nonprofit which those are the minds we need to solve some of the biggest problems in the world. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. And I have said, as a consultant, I've said a lot more nonprofits need to put their for-profit hat on and, and start acting like that. Um, so uh, I will listen to Dan and, and, and learn from his uh, TED Talk. Um, and we will have that, for all you listening, we'll have that in the show notes so that people can link directly. Thanks for that, Blythe. Um, so let's move a little bit, let's move on to sort of the motivation behind December. So we know why you started with the dress. That was sort of a creative, a creative project. But why trafficking? What was it about that that sort of got your attention? Yeah, for me, you know, for a long time I took for granted that, you know, isn't this an issue that everyone feels a sense of urgency to solve? Isn't this something that keeps other people up at night? And um, I think it does horrify people in general. But for me, it took a few years to realize like, oh, the reason I chose this issue specifically and the reason this personally fires me up is because of an experience I had as a little girl where mm -hmm. I was molested more than once by someone I trusted. Mm. Um and then for years carrying the weight of guilt and shame and these really heavy questions around my worth and lovability um, and disposability that came with that. And um, so just in, in that personal way, getting a glimpse at what women and girls are experiencing every day hmm. in the world. Again, um, I'm sort of hit with how your own personal, like who you are as a person has informed what you're doing, both in the, I mean, kind of three things, wearing the dress, coming from a creative um, sort of personal campaign. Can I do this? Can I wear a dress? Which by the way, I don't know that I could. I feel like I need to take this on just oh, to say, totally I never, can. I never wear a dress. Um, but also then how you approached your, is it a 2080 split? For it's a your, 2080 split. Yeah. So how you approached the fundraising based on 
both of the things you just mentioned, both how you how you think nonprofits could work and and sort of a fresh perspective on that, but also who you are as a person and being um, wise about where your skill set is. And then now even this, like what is it about my personal story that informs that? And I think, again, for our listeners who, I think there's a lot of pressure on what is my passion and what is the thing that I need to be putting forth in the world. And um, I often say, well, just lighten that question a little bit and just ask yourself what you're curious about. And so you've given us an example, perhaps not on the curiosity side, but just who am I that I have something to give or how does my own, sto my own story inform what it is I want to do or where I want to have an impact. Um, so you're a prime example of that life. So I want to ask something that's more on the entrepreneurial end. Um, did you ever think you would kind of launch your own venture? Did you ever want to work for yourself? Would you ever have considered yourself to be an entrepreneur? Or was this, I want to do this from a social impact point of view. And so that's what's motivating me. I never planned on starting a company. Um, I never planned on leading a nonprofit. I always thought that I did really well in a supportive role, mm -hmm. supporting someone else's vision and leadership. Um, so it has all been really surprising and a really steep <laughs> growth curve. Um, but it's been super exciting. I always tell people it's 51% exciting and 49% terrifying because sure. it's all so new. Um, or each, each day, each week I'm learning something new. Um, but yeah, I guess as, as Dressember grew, it, just like I said, it's, it is an issue that's so close to my heart that there was not much of a, a choice or a, um, I didn't debate over like whether or not to continue pursuing it. It just felt like, oh no, like this is, this is growing and I need to grow with it. I need to keep up with it and did, serve it well. Did you start to feel comfortable in that role? Did it, I mean, even with the 51, 49%, was it like, <laughs> I, I can be both, um, terrified, excited, and know that it's what I'm supposed to be doing. Can all those coexist? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, this experience has been the, it's, it was the first time I felt like this is what I was born to do. Um, so as scary and new and unexpected as a lot of it has been, um, I definitely felt like I was, I was called to do this. So what we're born to do or called to do doesn't mean it's not scary. And, oh, I yeah. think it's scarier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love that. Thank you for that for me personally, but also thank you for that for everybody listening who thinks too scary must not be the answer to um, what I'm trying, what I'm asking, which is what am I supposed to be doing? Um, so one of the things about, one of the other things about December that's really unique is and, and actually in learning more about kind of the nonprofit space, as I've been kind of getting to know Dresember, I'm learning that it's not super unusual for an organization to actually be um, more of an advocate organization, not necessarily boots on the ground. But since it was new information for me, I'm going to assume it will be new information for our listeners. Can you sort of give us a little bit of kind of the background between, and let me see if I can get this right. So December is really about 
education and advocacy to those people that don't know about the trafficking issue, an opportunity to support and give money to the trafficking issue. But you guys as an organization don't have boots on the ground that you partner with organizations that are doing that work to alleviate those communities and by giving them grants. Do do I have it right? Yeah, we are essentially a crowdfunded foundation. Um, We're exactly what you said, where we're an advocacy organization and we, um, you know, underneath the umbrella of advocacy, there's education, awareness, fundraising, um, but kind of generating public awareness and enthusiasm to support the the work of anti-trafficking. Um, so then we give large strategic and targeted grants towards organizations with proven impact uh, to have a long-lasting impact. And did you know that prior to being a part of the nonprofit world, did you know that it was an option to support or to partner with those people and, and really focus your energies on the advocacy side? Or did you think, well, if I'm, if December is going to be, um, an advocacy organization for the anti-trafficking movement, then I need to, I need to be boots on the ground. Like, did you understand that you didn't have to play that role? I think when I started December, that was a pretty new idea. Like even, um, the, the idea of a, of a brand having, um, a, an issue or an organization that it supports like a percentage of its proceeds to, or like a, like a Tom's social mm-hmm. impact, like all that was pretty new. Even when dress Ember was first starting, if you had asked me if dress Ember was a foundation, I don't know that I even would have been able to, to have an answer for that mm-hmm. initially, because, um, when I, when you think of a foundation, you think of a um, you know, a wealthy family, or you think of a corporation, um, that makes grants. You don't think of a crowdfunded foundation necessarily. When I started Dressember, I was approaching it with a mentality of like a birthday campaign where I'm asking people to donate to a cause just because I want them to. And, um, it's, you know, obviously become so much more than that, but it's really not so different than, the way a number of other organizations operate. Um, not many people know this, but charity water is also a crowdfunded foundation where they don't have, um, boots on the ground themselves, but they make grants to their partners in countries like Ethiopia and other areas. And so for those who maybe that's a great example, thank you for that. For those who maybe have seen something with charity water where they're taking people over, they're taking people over as part of the campaign, part of the awareness, part of the education. It's not necessarily the case that they're digging the wells or fixing the wells. They're partnering with somebody who's doing that, right? Yeah, exactly. And they're certainly, I mean, they're playing a Uh, an important role in that process because they're the ones funding it to make it happen. So I don't want to downplay that. Um, but it is a different story that they tell, um, as a brand than what we tell us as a brand with dress Ember. As somebody who would be, um, on the advocacy end, meaning you would approach me and say, Hey, here's the trafficking story. We want you to become aware of this. We want to educate you about this and we want you to give money. I actually, appreciate your 
that the model is separate from boots on the ground because it feels like it creates um, a level of accountability. Like you're basically saying to these partners, hey, if you meet our December standards, then we're going to give you money. And then I am looking to you, December, to weed out um, organizations that are doing what they say they're doing, organizations that are really creating the impact that they say that they're going to create or have created. You've done the homework for me. So I, as a, as a, a consumer or a customer, let's say, am trusting your voice and am looking to you to make those distinctions. And you're empowered to make them or you're incented to make them because that's your job versus I'm raising money and I'm boots on the ground. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this narrative comes from kind of a one dimensional point of view. Um, so I would think that people would be excited to give December money from that end, that it would be an easier raise or an easier ask of you. Have you found that to be the case? Well, thank you for, for yeah. saying that and having <laughs> I that opinion. To believe it's true. Yeah. Um, you know, I always joke that our biggest competition are the organizations that we support. You know, sometimes people will write in and say, well, I, I have $50 to give. Why should I give it to you and not directly to, um, IJM or A21? And, um, it's been tricky to figure out how to respond to that because, what we do is essentially what you just described, where we partner with organizations and come up with strategic targeted, uh, ways that we want the money to be used. Um, so I don't know that I can necessarily dissuade someone from making a general mm -hmm. donation to our partners, but it is an opportunity when you donate to Dress Ember to be part of a large strategic grant where we are, helping move the needle forward in anti-trafficking overall. So if, I feel like if you take a long-term, more global view at fixing a problem, it actually behooves those of us giving money to go through somebody like you and have somebody who's acting as the the, the third party to weed that out. Um, it would be almost like, I, I can't help but think of Africa and hunger, like if back in the 60s, we had decided there was one organization that was going to help raise the funds and then they would dole out the funds to the various people who were boots on the ground based on communities that needed to be alleviated, based on regions, whatever, that maybe some of this would have been solved without people being, you know, reinventing the wheel or creating redundancies in the, in the model. So it seems, I can imagine that it's hard short term to explain to somebody why they wouldn't give directly, but I think if we can kind of get a long-term perspective, it's actually a great way to go mm. about alleviating a, a problem more holistically. Am I getting that right or yeah. am I making that up yeah. in my head? It, it definitely is. It's an, an efficient model. Um, it's and a better, and that, it, that's a better it, word. Yeah. Well, and it's a responsibility that we don't take lightly, uh, you know, especially as I think about continuing to grow my staff. Um, a lot of what I've been thinking about lately is bringing on people from a grant making background that mm -hmm. can really um, sharpen our approach. Mm -hmm. But we've, yeah, we've, um, we've built a, an external grant advisory committee as well as our internal board of directors. Mm -hmm. Um, just to help review our applications for grants and have 
the biggest impact we can have. And like I said, to have a really strategic, um, holistic approach to what we're doing internationally. And to that end, you have two, and you mentioned them, organizations that you've been giving to, but 2018 presents a whole new year where you're expanding how many partners you work with, correct? Yeah, exactly. So so actually this year we have a third partner um, that we haven't announced a, a whole bunch, but they're a, small, a smaller partner in Syracuse, New York called McMahon Child Advocacy Center. Um, so they're our first domestic partner. But beginning in the spring of 2018, we're going to open up an application process by invitation to a handful of domestic organizations regionally across the U.S. um, with the hope that we can blanket the U.S. with our partnerships for the 2018 campaign. That's awesome. I think it's also one of the most startling pieces of the anti-trafficking story is how much by percentage is actually here in our backyard. And um, one that I think while I've been aware of trafficking in general. It's only been in the last couple of years that I've come to realize how much of that is a a responsibility we have just to our fellow Americans. I had no idea or people being brought into America. Um, Is that something that you feel like is part of kind of December telling that piece of the story more specifically? Definitely. Um, You know, Trafficking is rampant here in the U.S. and it just it looks so different than it does in other countries. It's a lot more coercive and manipulative. And what's shocking is I th- I think that the majority of those trafficked in the U.S. don't know that they're being trafficked. Mm. It's that um, manipulative. But there are statistics on um, you know the majority of children trafficked in the U.S. are American citizens. Um, a lot of them are, are coming out of the foster care system. They're runaways or they've aged out. There's um, some shocking statistics on the, uh, the speed at which a runaway child will be recruited by a trafficker. I think within 48 hours, it's like 30% of those children wow. will be recruited. Um, but again, it's a very manipulative uh, process of like, oh, this person is giving me a type of love I've never received, a type of protection I've never felt. Um, And then there's just a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding around trafficking here here in the U.S. I think um, internationally, the the percentage of recruitment that happens through kidnapping is less than 2%. Mm -hmm. And yet that's what you see in movies like Taken. And that's what you see in certain news stories that come about uh, where people suspect trafficking. So the vast majority of it is through fake job opportunities or manipulation. You do a great job of telling that story in your TED Talk, and we'll make sure to have uh, your TED, a link to your TED Talk up in the show notes. But you talk about exactly what you just said by percentage and how people are manipulated. I think it's your talk that mentions the even the – you call them something, lover boy? Is, is that the lover boy Le- method? Yeah. So that's really where they've engaged in a true relationship, and it's – sort of insidious. It's not until later in the relationship that it comes, like it's clear what's happening, correct? Yeah. And I'm not sure if A21 coined that term or if that's a term that is used across the anti-trafficking sector. Um, But the lover boy method is, uh, you know, a a boy seduces a young woman. uh, He's her boyfriend. He's romancing her, treating her well. And then three to six months in, um, 
he convinces her to come to another country or another city to, to meet his family. And then everything switches from there and she never sees him again because his role is to recruit. So it's really insidious, like you said. Well, and yeah, just the thought of somebody plotting for three to six months, it's like where the, the humanity is really, as opposed to a bad decision. I don't know. There's, there's something about it that I, I think what you're able to do in making us aware changes the way we view the problem, whether it's internationally or in the States. Um, okay, Blythe, where do you see December in five years, let's say? Um, in five years, you know, I often have to recalibrate my vision because it's not big enough for the way December is growing, but that would put us at 2023. You know, my goal is at that point, we're raising over $10 million a year. We have a network of partners across the U S mm -hmm. and internationally. That's a big, a big part of my vision is as December grows, our network of partnerships also grows. And what do those partnerships look like? Like what, what, who would be a natural December partner, whether those people are listening and might be interested or just from a, from someone listening who might have a 5013C or want to have one, like how do you view collaborative partnerships? Yeah, we look first and foremost at, um, do our values align? Um, so our dress members values include collaboration, creativity, dignity, and yeah, and then we look at five specific criteria. Um, there's a little bit of overlap with our values, but are they a collaborative organization? Are they an innovative, creative organization? Are they culturally sensitive? Do they have a way of measuring their impact? And are they sustainable over the long run? That's helpful for anybody listening who has a social organization for or not for profit. And um, I think just to outline very clearly based on core values, what's important who and who is important for them to partner with is super helpful. And speaking of um, you giving great advice to those listening, I want to transition us into the second half of this interview, um, one where we really kind of look to you as an expert based on your experience with December and the work that you've done to date. And one of the questions that I think is just a personal question, which is it seems to me that the rise of kind of, uh, kind of social impact ventures, whether they're for-profit or, uh, or not-for-profit, is on the rise, uh, especially out of, um, I think, the more millennial generation who are really mindful or conscientious about sort of their footprint in every way. Why do you think that is? And what is your advice to those listening who want to do kind of something that creates a positive impact? What's your advice slash warning to them? Because it is, it's very romantic. It's this very romantic idea of I can kind of save the world. So what would you like them to know? Yeah, well, I think um, as a larger culture, we are increasingly aware of the fact that our choices matter mm -hmm. and we do have power in the things that we choose to buy, the brands that we support. Um, and it's becoming almost an expectation that a brand has a social responsibility built in. And so with that, I think, I think, you know, assuming that it will continue to be the expectation, it is important to think about regardless of what you do or, or what type of company you want to create to think about, um, what is, what is our larger purpose and what, 
um, cause or issue can we align with and do it in a real and meaningful way? Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're building a large company or aligning a larger company, it's something you encourage from top to bottom that this is, this is our brand's, um, you know, the issue we're behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something you, you bring everyone in every level in on, um, and then you g- have a significant give back to an organization or to a partner brand. And so again, for that same group of people who are listening to this and thinking that Blythe, she's so heroic and wears this cape and is kind of saving the day with this um, particular group or in this particular way, can you give them a reality check and sort of shed some light on what is the day-to-day of this um, kind of the the life of Blythe, the CEO founder of a nonprofit called Dresember? Yeah, it is. Um, the day-to-day is not very exciting. It's not glamorous. I'm behind my computer by myself most of the time. Um, it's something that I brought up recently in hiring that I just wanted to make sure um, the last person we hired, uh, different people we interviewed, I wanted to make sure there were no illusions of, mm. you know, we're going to have these lengthy conversations about anti-trafficking and how to dismantle it every day in the workplace. <laughs> that really our day-to-day is... Um, a lot of emails. It's a lot of website and social media and, um, it, it's fun, but it's not, it's not glamorous and it doesn't feel like you're changing the world every minute of the day. When you were interviewing, did you see a lot of faces go from smiling to like, Oh, bummer. <laughs> I want to be part of that. Like that's the, that's what's exciting me about wanting to work with this organization or did people get it? People seem to get it luckily. Um, yeah, or they did a good job just playing it off. Yeah, so they're it, still it, well, excited. That is part of the hiring or the interview process, I guess. So I'm going to get even more specific. So as the founder, as the CEO, how much time do you spend day to day or week to week being visionary, raising funds, and managing administrative, like either by percentage or just give us every day is different, whatever the case is for you? You know, every month of the year looks so different Mm -hmm. behind the scenes for us. Um, I would say this time of year I get to be, I get to do more speaking engagements and more podcast interviews, which helps me feel more visionary. Mm -hmm. But I think if we're looking at, um, you know, the off, the off season months, that's like a hundred percent administrative and logistics. Um, but even, even right now, kind of in the thick of things, as things ramp up, it's, it's the vast majority of it is administrative stuff. Is there one of those roles that you prefer? Well, I am not a natural fundraiser, which is surprising. So that would not be my favorite. Um, and I've, I've learned to love aspects of administrative work, but I mean, I think the easy, the easy choice is the visionary. Like when I get to sit and think about our strategic plan for the Mm -hmm. next three years, or when I get to speak to a group of high schoolers, about how they can have an impact, um, or when I get to write for our soon to launch blog on, um, the impact of Dressember, um, definitely the vision work is the most fulfilling. Yeah. And again, I would imagine most people who are motivated by whatever it is they're motivated by and listening to this and saying, that's what I want to be doing. The nice thing about your answer um, and the thing I love about your answer is that 
they don't have to shy away because they're not a natural fundraiser. Uh, they don't have to limit themselves because something like that is not one of their strengths. And you, it's interesting while you say that you're not a natural fundraiser because of who you are, because of your more introverted nature, I trust you when you're pitching to me. I trust you when you say this is an organization that, and you, you never ask, there's never an ask in it, but just when you're telling me that story, I'm compelled to want to give. So I would venture to say that you actually are a great fundraiser um, because of that, because people are truly listening to you. You're not, there's no song and dance. There's no kind of backslapping that's accompanied with, with your presence. Um, so for whatever that's worth. I actually think you are Thanks. a good fundraiser. So we are obsessed with apps and tools and resources and tips mm. and anything you've got to help us sort of navigate our day-to-day. Can you share a little bit about what you do um, to keep December afloat while also keeping a personal life intact? That's a great question. Um, so this contractor that I just hired is uh, managing communications. Mm-hmm. So we are like co-strategizing and then she's handling all the implementation, which is just wonderful um, for my personal life yes, and peace I'm of sure. mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, we use all the all the regular apps, the usual suspects. Um, and then there's a couple like planning apps that we've started using, yeah. like um, one called Unum. Oh. U-N-U-N. We don't know that one. It's a great... I don't know that one. <laughs> it's a great planning app. And then there's another one um, that you can make an easy grid if you wanted to do like um, like nine posts that collectively okay. make one image. Uh-huh. It does that really easily for you. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. You'll send them to us and then we'll add those sure. in the, short, the show notes because it's so helpful to have those. But I don't want to stop you. It sounds like you've got more to share. Well, there's another one through that uses Twitter. Um, I think it's called TweetDeck. I'd have to check on that, but it's a way of just quickly monitoring like who's using your hashtags. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't even know its full capacity because my one of my board members showed me like, oh, you can search the verified users who have talked about your brand, and so found all these like corporations and celebrities and stylists who had been talking about Dressember last last year that wow. we just totally missed. So um, definitely gonna push into that a little more this year. That's awesome. Okay. So we'll want all of those for our, for our show notes and apparently just so I can learn (laughs) which ones need to be used. Um, what do you wish? I want you to go all the way back to four, almost five years ago when December sort of became official. What do you wish somebody would have told you or you would have known before you launched this whole endeavor? I think it goes back to something I said earlier where what I wish I knew is that a leader is not born. Mm. A leader is created and grown over time. So I think for a number of years, I thought I'm not a leader. I can support someone else's leadership and their vision. Um, and I, you know, the, the learning curve to leadership is steep, but I think it would have been less intimidating if I had approached it with like, anyone can be a leader. Mm -hmm. I'm a leader and I need to, to grow into that position. Um, so it's something I've definitely grown into and continue to grow into. Um, I'm also really passionate about the fact that just as a 
general society, we don't really encourage leadership in little girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at a conference recently where a male speaker asked us to think back to times where we were encouraged um, to pursue leadership or where leadership characteristics were pointed out in us. And the only person I could think of or the 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 earliest person was in adulthood about three years ago, someone who was on my board for a while who really encouraged me as a leader. Um, so that's a whole other thought, but yeah, I wish I just had, had encouraged myself earlier. I, you're sort of, um, I don't know if you think of it this way, but by virtue of giving young girls, giving all girls, but girls an opportunity to become advocates by wearing a dress and by raising money for December, you're creating leaders. So you, thank you for that as a, as a mother of a daughter. Um, and also it, you should think about it that way because I, you're giving them a voice in a way that is probably new to their experiences and one that they will always remember. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's that quote that you can't be what you can't mm-hmm. see. So, yeah, I know. I, I or what you can't hear, which is why Liberty Sessions <laughs> exist. Yes, that's right. We love that quote. Um, and so, having said that, and I think you gave us two really good pieces of advice, but is there anything else that you would like to share with a listener who's thinking about launching a venture again, whether it's for profit or not for profit? Kind of a parting words for for those. Of, uh, who will be listening to you and, and, um, gleaning from your advice? Yeah, I think I would say just go for it. Like put yourself in a position where you've almost back yourself into a corner, either financially or in, in some commitment, like in some way commit to it in a way that there's like no take backs. Yeah. (laughs) Ouch. Okay. Um, (laughs) And then the second piece of advice I would give anyone is, um, to look for people to collaborate with, look for partners, look for, um, brands that you can partner with organizations you could potentially partner with. Um, bottom line is we can't do anything alone. We're stronger together, better together. And I definitely could not create a movement without other people in the movement and and making the movement. That very sentiment is something that we've heard over and over in the last few podcasts for sure, but that, you know, even for people who prefer working alone, who are introverted, that they're able to really see sort of where they begin and end and what having people around them and that organization and that support can do for the venture. So I, um, I appreciate that. Okay. So now we're going to switch it up. We're just going to have a little fun now. Um, I'm going to ask you six questions. It's something we call our quick six, just a way for our audience to get to know you a little bit more. Uh, and so just the first thing that comes to mind, just give us that answer. So do you prefer a nine to five or a flex schedule? Flex. Okay. Uh, mountains or the beach when vacationing? Mountains. Do you prefer to work from home or an office? From home. Always? You see, it's so warm the way you said from home. From home. I'm just picturing my like comfy, you know, my leggings and my comfy socks. Um, I have the advantage right now of people coming to me Uh in my home. So it's, I guess it's an office for them. Yeah. 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 Do you, um, when you are away or working with the board or have bigger meetings, are you 
do they come to your home or just again? Oh, no, we definitely okay. use okay. an office or a meeting space. space. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then do you prefer working alone or with a team? With a team. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All the time? Because you talked about the introverted part and you spend a lot of time in front of your computer. Would you say like... You know, I've had my fair share of working alone over the last four years that it's <laughs> it really to refreshing to have. Um, even, you know, there's times where I'm working with someone and we're not talking, we're just working yeah. and it's great. Yeah, I totally get that. Um, I think this is the hardest question. Some would argue. Do you prefer Thai or Mexican food? That is super hard. Yeah, see? <laughs> I could eat Mexican food every day. But Thai food feels like a treat. Yeah. So maybe Mexi That's a Mexican during the week and Thai on the weekends. Yeah, okay. That is a totally fair answer and new for Liberty Sessions. Thank you, Blythe. <laughs> um, and then this question, maybe a little less on the light end of things, but uh, we this company is called Liberty. This podcast is called Liberty Sessions. And it's our hope that we will liberate women by telling these stories and through entrepreneurship. What does it mean for you to be liberated? Well, so much of what I do at Dress Ember and what Dress Ember stands for, one of our core values is freedom. Um, and to me, that means freedom on all levels, mental, spiritual, emotional, obviously physical, um, but that specifically women would have nothing holding them back from mm -hmm. living free and vibrant lives. I love that. Thank you, Blythe, for what you're doing through December to make the world a better place. Thank you for your time on this podcast. I can't wait to listen to it again. And um, for all you Liberty listeners, thanks for joining us. And we will talk to you later. Bye. Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty Sessions on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to launch and grow your own ventures. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Windham and music by Jordan Flower.